The year was about 90 AD, around 20 years before, two decades before. The, the temple that stood in Jerusalem had been absolutely leveled. The Emperor Titus, along with his army, the Roman army, came in and they absolutely leveled the central spot of worship in Judaism, and in doing so, started to remove even the very soul and heart of, of that religion. They, they've never worshipped the same since that building was destroyed. And the Apostle John, at this point in time, is a friend of Jesus. He's one of the only disciples still alive. In fact, most people would say he's the only disciple still alive. And he finds himself in exile. He finds himself on this little island off the coast of what's now modern-day Turkey. It's about 24 miles from the shore, and he's there as a prisoner of the empire of Rome. Rome at this time in 90 is, is ruled by a man by the name of Domitian. And Domitian was the very first emperor who required that he was worshipped as both God and Savior. And John refused to bow the knee. And can you imagine standing before the emperor, uh, being required to bow down to worship him as God, and, and John this friend of Jesus, the, the one who cared for Jesus' mom after Jesus was crucified and risen, the, the one, the one who leaned up against Jesus during the Last Supper meal that he celebrated with his disciples, this John, this John finds himself refusing to bow the knee. Tradition says that, that um, Domitian got a pot of boiling oil as hot as he could, and he dumped it on the apostle John trying to kill him. It sort of backfired on him, though. The, the people who were there trying to witness this martyrdom, this murder, actually turned and started to follow Jesus because they saw that it just didn't affect John in the way that it should have. And so since he couldn't kill him, Domitian thought, well, we'll just put him on an island with a bunch of other criminals. <laughs> I wonder, in an ancient world, what it might have been like to be on a deserted island only with a few other prisoners and to look up at the stars. <laughs> I, wonder if the, I wonder if the night just felt like it would never end, like the sky just kept going and going and going. I, I wonder... If that promise made to Abraham, I'll make your descendants like the stars, like the sand on the seashore. I wonder if he walked those shores and thought about that promise. I wonder if the silence was just almost deafening. I mean, John, who's the pastor of a, a series of churches and and now he's taken away from his churches, and the, the empire rules with an iron fist. They had something they called Pax Romana. It was the Roman peace, but it was only peace if you were on the right side of the sword. And I wonder if John starts to replay the things that he's seen Jesus do, the, the healings that he's seen, the raising from the dead, the mud on the guy's eyes, and he miraculously sees the guy who carries his mat away from the spot that he'd been sitting crippled for years and years and years. And I wonder if John sits isolated on this island wondering when his miracle's going to come. 24 miles away from anything that would in any way, shape, or form uh, be seen as redemption 
or hope. Well, that's where we pick up our story. It's a a Sunday morning, and John is doing what you do as a disciple on Sundays, which is going to church. It says it in uh, verse uh, 11 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. It says that, well, and John was was in the spirit, it says, (laughs) and he heard a voice. He heard a voice that said, hey, John, write this down. You wonder if John like busted out his iPhone and opened Evernote or what, what he did. I don't know what he did if he found some um, spare parchment that's lying around. And however he did it, John grabbed the closest thing he could to start writing and he started to record with his scarred hands and his parched soul the words from Jesus that we read in this book of Revelation. It's this book that's written to an empire. It's written to a church in the midst of an empire. It's written to a church that's barely holding on. It's written to a church that's seen its people dragged away and stuck on Roman crosses. It's seen its pastor tried to be boiled in scalding hot oil. It's seen things that we couldn't possibly imagine seeing. And this letter, this letter, before it's about any events that are going to happen in the future, it's about a person who stands above the future, okay? So before it's about a dragon eating a virgin, whatever you take that to mean, it's about a Jesus who stands above it all. And it's written to a really, really direct group of people. It's written to churches who are in the midst of empire. It's written to churches who are trying to survive and trying to have influence when they have absolutely no power. And it's written to a group of people who are barely, barely, barely holding on. And it's written with this message. The message is, the powers that be will not always be the powers. Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is what we're going to be studying over the next really nine weeks, including today. We're going to study the letters to the seven churches that um, this, this whole letter is really addressed to. But the, this letter has been, you may be aware of this, you may not. There's a little bit of debate around the book of Revelation. Okay? This just in. And what I've seen is that people have two approaches, two equally damaging or dangerous approaches to Revelation. One is ignorance, right? It's like, we could have absolutely no idea what's actually going on, so let's just stay away from this book. Let's not touch it, right? Chapter 12, there's a dragon that tries to eat a virgin. I really don't know what to do with that, so let's just put it on the shelf and forget about it. The other one is obsession, right? Where it's like everything comes back to the book of Revelation. The newspapers opened and we're going, well, it could be this and it could be that and it could be this. And this, Justin, they've been doing that for the last 100, 200 years, okay? They haven't nailed it yet. Just going to throw it out there. We might not nail it this time. We might not, okay? So there's obsession and there's ignorance. And what I'd like to propose to you is that maybe there's a different way to read this book. That maybe there's a, maybe there's a better way to read this book. Maybe there's a way that's more true to what this book actually is intending to do. Because the very word revelation, which is the first word in the Greek in this letter that John gets from Jesus through John to the churches, is revelation. It's a, in the Greek, it's this word apocalypse, right? 
which we have a, a negative association with, with. The apocalypse is coming. That's negative. It literally just means unveiling. It's as though the Spirit of God is pulling the curtain back and going, okay, so this is what's on the horizon. But more important than what's on the horizon is who is on the throne. And that's what Revelation is all about. Revelation is written in a style of literature that's called apocalyptic literature. Will you say that with me? Apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature means that, that John's going to use symbols. John's going to use pictures. John's going to use um, uh, numbers in order to tell a story that's deeper and more significant than just what's on the surface. At some points, Revelation almost reads like a, like a graphic comic book. It's, it's pretty interesting. We don't have this type of literature in, in any sort of prominence in our day and time today, and so it can be difficult to understand what John's talking about, but it's not difficult to understand why Jesus gives John this letter. The reason Jesus gives John the letter of Revelation to give to the churches is because the churches are getting beat up. Because the churches feel like hope is slipping away. And because the churches look all around them and go, I mean, we could have sworn, we, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. He was in the ground, we thought he was dead, he raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven and this existence doesn't seem like it coincides with that reality. Anyone want to say, I get that? Yeah, because here's the thing. At the beginning of a year, what we do is we, we look back on the last year, and we look forward to what the new year's going to bring, and we carry in these hopes, and we carry in these dreams, and then it's about at this time, sometime next week, maybe beginning of February, we realize that it really is an artificial change to just flip a calendar and expect that everything's going to be new, right? So we go into the new year with new hopes, but with the same reality. And I know some of your lives, some of your lives, you feel like you're asking that question, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And God, if you really do rule and if you really do reign, then why in the world does my life and your world look the way that it looks? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Revelation is going to I don't know if it's going to answer that question, but it's at least going to speak to it, and it's going to speak to people that have that question. If you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what Jesus writes through John to the churches. The revelation of, of whom? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written, for the time is what? Near. So two times in the opening stanza of Revelation, we're going to get, okay, there's things that must soon take place. The time is near, right? So as we read the book of Revelation, here's just a rule of thumb. If it can fit with what happened near and soon to when John was writing, we should assume that that's what Jesus meant, 
okay? Because that's what he says his intention is. Now, certainly, some of the things are future things, but some of them fit with the Roman Empire and Domitian and what's going on in John's world. But make no mistake about it, he expects that we would read it, that we'd hear it, and that we would live it, that we'd do it. And just so you don't think I'm lying to you, there's a very specific audience that John is writing to. John, verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia, which is Asia Minor. And if you jump down to verse 11, he's going to say this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he's going to name who they are. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's a group of churches, a a network of churches that's in what's now modern-day Turkey. And the letters were, it looks like, intended to be taken along with the rest of the letter of Revelation and delivered to each of these churches. Can you imagine what it must have been like to get a letter with a return address that said, from Jesus? I mean, that's what's going on. This is no significant, insignificant thing. And what John wants to do is say, I, I know you've had friends that have been crucified. And I know, I've, I've been trying to be boiled alive. I, I get it, we're walking through the fire quite literally sometimes. In fact, what John's going to say is he is in the midst of and a partner with them in tribulation. He goes, this is It's pressing in. It's the pressure cooker. It's the instapot of the first century, right? Instant pot. That's what what it's called, right? Anybody else get one of those for Christmas? It's pressing in on the churches, and it's in that situation that Jesus writes because he wants to bring hope, because he wants to bring healing, because he wants to bring restoration, because life really, really easily can feel like the pressure cooker. There's a movie that came out over um, this Christmas break. It was is called Downsizing. Um, I, I haven't seen it. I've just heard about it, and I read the plot. The plot is um, interesting in that a, a group of scientists develop a way to, to shrink people so that their resources go further, so that they can enjoy some of the normal things in life, but on an elevated scale, they take on a, a whole new meaning and a whole new sense of pleasure. I saw this picture, and I thought, man, 2017 felt that way to a lot of people I know, where it just felt like nothing quite went right, and the world around them grew, and fear grew, and they started to, to shrink, <laughs> I watched with many of you the memorial service for the officer who was shot last Sunday morning. And it's easy in our world, isn't it, with with death and a death like that that's so public and so painful, somebody who's given his life to say, I want to protect and I want to serve. And and we watch and we we weep with Gracie Parrish, don't we? That, That this is the kind of world that we live in. And we can, we can look at our, our current political landscape, and regardless of what side of that you're on, can we all agree that it's a fearful thing to live in a world where leaders and presidents have a button on their desk that can detonate a nuclear bomb? Right? 
Like, I don't care if you're pro or against. That's a scary world to live in. And, it, and, and here's, the, here's what it can start to do. It can start to make you go, man, God, where in the world are you? Because it feels like fear has us in this pressure cooker. It feels like sadness. It feels like depression. And the churches in the first century will go, oh, we get that. We get that. And Jesus says, I've got a, I've got a word for you. John says, I've, I've got a word for you. There's a bigger story being told. Here's the story. Grace and peace, and they would have gone, that would be really nice. From him who was, and him who is, and him who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. In the first chapter of Revelation alone, Jesus is either mentioned by name or by personal pronoun 32 times. So John goes, I've got a word for you. Actually, better than that, I've got a name for you. If you're walking through the fire, if you're holding on to hope and it's a slippery thing to hold on to, I've got a word for you. His name is Jesus. And here's what John wants to communicate in this letter of Revelation. It's that when Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized, and life is supersized. That's what he wants to say. He wants to go, all right, churches, all right, you seven churches around the, the Mediterranean region, lift your eyes up because the Jesus who walks among you, sure, fear wants to downsize you. Hopelessness wants to downsize you. But there's a Jesus who, who walks among you that's, that's not just, not downsized, and I, I said upsized, it's probably better just real-sized. <laughs> this is the Jesus who walks among them. He's, as the text says, he's the faithful witness. He's the conqueror of the grave, and he's the ruler of the king of the kings of the earth. I'll say it again. Before Revelation is ever about a plan, it's about a person. It's about a person. A person who stands above it all. So here's the, here, will you look up at me for a moment? My conviction is, and you can come up and disagree with me afterwards if you want, that's fine. My conviction is, it's not the size of our issues and our problems that are the real issue. Because every problem we have, we measure in relationship to how big our God is. It's not actually the problem that's the issue. It's, the, it's, it's how we've minimized our God. And if we want to walk in abundance, if we want to walk in life, we've got to see the Jesus that the scriptures describe that stands above the circumstances that we walk through, the pain that we hold on to, the regrets that we have, the I wish I would have but I didn't conversations that we replay in our brain over and over and over. See, it's not the problem that's the issue. It's the smallness of our God. And so what Revelation wants to do, what John wants to do in Revelation, like putting air into a balloon, he wants to go, okay, okay, okay. I know all this stuff that's going on. I know all the difficult situations. I, we're in tribulation. We're in the pressure cooker. I get it. But Jesus, Jesus is, Jesus is bigger than you could ever possibly. Lift your eyes up, he'd say. So that's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I just want to lift our eyes up because I have this conviction that when Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized, and life is supersized. 
and I want him to supersize me. That's not an endorsement for McDonald's, by the way. It's just, I just want, I want that life that he has for us. So let me give you three truths that invite us into this reality that we see in the first letter, or first section of Revelation. And here's how uh, the framework I want to use. Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book, Reverse Thunder, which just is just a, a quick endorsement. If you're looking for a book that might help you understand the entire letter of Revelation a little bit better, I cannot recommend Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson highly enough. Write it down. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. Without Jesus as the controlling center, the Bible is merely an encyclopedia of religion with no more plot than a telephone directory. Now, here's what he says. Jesus is at the center of it all. The whole story points to him. And so he's who we're going to talk about. He's who the letter is written about. And here's the way that John begins his content. He says this. Grace and peace to you from the one who was and who one who is and the one who is to come and to the seven spirits who are what before what? Say it with me. His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, to the what? Ruler of the kings on earth. So here's the first thing that John wants his audience and Jesus wants his audience to know. It's that he reigns above it all. He's going, listen, I know that there's an emperor whose name is Domitian, who's requiring you to worship and to bow the knee. And I know it feels like the Roman Empire is never going to be defeated. And it feels like hope is something that's so slippery that it should never even be pursued. I get it. I get it. But he goes, hey, there's a bigger reality. Lift up your eyes and see the truth. That Jesus reigns above it all. And the scriptures are going to tell us right here that he reigns in a way that he's atoned for and conquered sin, that he has conquered the grave, that he stands above it all in the universe. And John goes, here's the intention of telling you that, so that you would continue to walk and continue to have endurance. It says it in verse 9, I, John, your brother partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's going, that's why I'm writing this to you. Listen, I I know some of what you're walking through because you invite me into your life, and I'm really grateful for that. I don't know everything. I don't know all the the phone call you got from the doctor this week about the health scare. I know that there's some of you that you're, this is the year you're going, God, we've got to see your hand move in a job because we're just barely hanging on. Or God, we're really praying that this relationship can be restored because we're offering forgiveness and it doesn't seem like there's any progress being made and and God, the pain is just pushing in on us. And I don't know what situation you bring in these doors today. Let me just say, it's safe to bring them in. You don't have to leave him at the door to come to worship, okay? It's safe to bring him in. And I don't know what kind of situation you're facing, but I do know, I do know that there's a Jesus who reigns above, who's powerful, who's loving, 
who's good. And when we have that view of Jesus in our mind, this elevated, real, big view of Jesus, life starts to take on more of an eternal perspective than getting caught in the weeds of our temporal existence. And so John says to a church in turmoil and tribulation, oh man, he rules and he reigns. And don't forget it when you look at the domitions of your day. He stands above them all. And here's the second thing he says. To him who, so he's going to move from what Jesus is doing and, and how Jesus is powerful to the way that Jesus wields his power and the reason he uses it and how he uses it on our behalf. To the one who, say it with me, loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood and who has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Isn't this a beautiful thing? That Jesus does not sit on his throne in heaven going, okay, I'm just going to be here and you guys bring me all the worship that I deserve. And he, he, could, he could do that. He deserves it. He goes, no, I'm, I'm going to use my power in order to advocate for my people. That's what he does. He's, he's the advocate for us. He reigns above us and he advocates for us. I know a lot of people who, at the beginning of a year, a new year, they sort of, they ask God for a word for the year. I don't know if you do that. But I was thinking as I read through this text, man, those are, those are three great words. If you're looking for your word for this year, for 2018, may I throw out, Three options. What if this year you started to learn to live as the beloved? There's, there's no greater gift that you can give yourself than to move into the reality that you are loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who stands and rules and reigns above it all. It's the deepest truth about you. And I don't care what kind of past you have, and I don't care what kind of road you've walked down and mistakes you've made. You've got those in your head. But I want to tell you that Jesus paid for those on the cross. So you can let him go and enter into a life of being the beloved. Maybe this is the year for that for you. Or maybe, maybe this is the year that you go, I want to embrace the freedom that's mine in Christ. It's why I love our Celebrate Recovery ministry so much. Because Jesus not only died for the punishment of sin, but he died to release you from the power of it also. And you don't have a weak advocate. You don't have an advocate who's going, I wish I could, but my hands are tied here. No, he's going, he's going I've done this. The prison cell's open, walk out. And we're like, oh, let me pray about it. <laughs> Door's open. Come on. Maybe this year you start to go, I'm going to embrace the reality and live in the truth that I'm free. That I'm free. Or maybe you start to go, okay, he's, he's not only loved me and he's freed me, he's, he's made me. This is, maybe this is the year where you start to go, all right, God, I'm going I'm to discover who you've made me to be. I'm going to discover the things that make me tick, the things that I'm good at. I can list a hundred things I'm bad at. But maybe this year is the year I step into, well, here's how you've gifted me and here's how you've wired me and here's the things you've put deep inside of me. I'm made to be a person 
priest, a bridge builder, one who points people to Jesus and invites them back to the Father. That's what that word priest means. It's a bridge builder, someone who is a bridge between humanity and God. He is advocating for you. And I just want to remind you that that means that you can have an empowered reality, an empowered today. But you can't be empowered if you're living in fear. And so this is the word that John wants to speak. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. Jesus loves. Jesus frees. Jesus makes. He transforms people into his image. He reigns above us. He advocates for us. And then John says this. In verse 12, he says, And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Isn't that interesting? To see the voice speaking to me. You can almost picture him writing this with like, not drinking too much coffee, but like, oh my goodness, I can't. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, a lampstand would have been a reference to the temple. The temple had a number of lampstands in it. They had oil in them, and the oil would be lit in order to light up the temple, but there was more significance than just let let us be able to see, which is significant in and of itself. Those lampstands all throughout the scriptures signified the spirit and the presence of God. And so Jesus is among, he's going, all right, and he's walking, his person is walking amongst the spirit and the presence of God. And then in verse 20, he's going to tell us exactly what those lampstands are. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. Evidently, each one of these churches had an angel that was its protector, messenger, overseer, And the seven lampstands are, anyone following along? Seven churches. The seven churches. As if to say that the churches, the local churches, this thing that we do, not just on Sundays, but this thing that we, we are, as we, like we did over this Christmas holiday, as we hold out hope, as we, as we bless our city, as we serve in a number of different region, areas, as we invite homeless people to come and to stay at our church, as we, as we do all those things, as we gather and worship, we host the presence of God. But John goes on. He doesn't just say, you host. He says, and, and in the midst, in the midst of those lampstands, in the, in the middle of those churches, is one like the Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. The, the Son of Man moves in our midst. He's above us. He advocates for us, and he walks among us. Uh, this caught my heart this week. As I was working through all these uh, theological concepts in the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 1, and trying to figure out how to present it to you, I, just, I was just struck by the reality that we can trivialize what we do as a community so easily. And we can miss the fact that that Jesus walks among us. 
I mean, I mean, think about that for a moment. And John wants to tell you what Jesus is like as he walks among us, but, but he doesn't stand off in the distance. Certainly, he rules and he reigns and he's comfortable on his throne, but he is not averse to coming and to walking and moving and breathing among us. And John tells us what he's like as he does that. As he moves among us, he's dressed, it says. He's dressed in a clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. It's a picture of a priest. You can read Exodus chapter 29, verse 5. It's a picture of what a priest would wear when they would stand between God and humanity, being the bridge, and Jesus stands in our midst as our perfect bridge between us and God. He's, he's clothed in priestly garments It says, it goes on, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. He's perfect. He's holy. His eyes were like a flaming fire. I mean, so when he looks at us, he sees into the deepest places of our soul. That's what it it means when it talks about his eyes. And it's not to condemn you, because we may go, oh no, that's not good. I don't know if I want Jesus to see in the deepest place of my soul. Well, well, he sees, he sees all the good. He sees all the things that we're struggling with. And that fiery eyes are this picture of, of refining. So we don't do ourselves any good when we try to hide. Because it's actually letting him see us as he walks among us that does the work that we need done. The transformation that's available in him. It says... And his feet were like a burnished bronze refined in the furnace. Um, It's a reference to Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And the feet of the person in his dream are clay mixed with iron. And when they get hit, the whole structure falls over because the foundation is so weak. And what it's saying about Jesus here is that his foundation is unsinkable. He's the one who was, who is, who is to come. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He's not going anywhere. He's worthy of your trust. The foundation is secure, is secure. It goes on to say his voice was like the roar of many waters, like like water coming over a waterfall or rushing through a raging river. You know, there's ways that you can say things that elicit a little bit more of, of meaning behind them. Um, my wife, Kelly, teaches high school English, and she has what we call a teacher's voice, right? And so she can say something with the teacher's voice, right? And she can say like, hey, pick up those shoes, right, in the teacher voice, and immediately my hands are full of shoes, right? And I'm like, okay, yes, ma'am, right? We're, throw those on the, wherever they go. It's, this is what, Je- what they're saying about Jesus is his voice carries an authority, an authority. It says he holds the seven stars, the, 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 the seven known fixed planets in the ancient world. What John is saying and what Jesus is communicating about himself is I reign above the cosmos. I, I do as I please. This is all mine. As Abraham Kuyper, the great theologian, said, there is not one square inch on the face of this globe where Jesus Christ does not cry out, that's mine. Not one. And it says, from his mouth came a double-edged sword. When he says something, it holds up. It's true. And his face... 
His face is like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, don't come to me and complain about how bright our lights are. I'll just tell you, we're preparing you for heaven, man. His face is shining brightly. As if to say, like, he's full of joy. Like, in heaven, we will need these lights. Because he just lights the whole place up. This, this is the Jesus who walks among us. So I started to think, all right, I don't just want you to go like, that's awesome. What I'd love for you to do is say, man, that, that raises my anticipation that this Jesus is in our midst. And so let me just give you a few practices throughout this week. And these may work for you. They may not. These are some that that I've practiced and that I love. But here here are some really practical ways that you can say, all right, I want to interact with the Jesus because that's what he's inviting us to. He walks among us for personal interaction. How do we do that? Here's a few ways you can do that. One, just throw a few of these out for you. What if this week you went on a walk and you were just like uber aware and intentional of the things around you. And you just had a conversation with Jesus about them. Like, wow, Jesus, that's a really nice bird. Wow, Jesus, I really wish my lawn looked like that guy's lawn. <laughs> Which, by the way, Jesus, how does he keep it so green in the winter? <laughs> or maybe you walk past somebody and you go, Lord, I don't know what's going on in their life. But I just, I just want to lift them up to you. Or maybe this week you pick a day and you drive with the radio in your car off. I don't know about you, I get in my car, I turn on sports talk radio, and hey, this just in, the Broncos are going to be talking about who their quarterback is until August. You're not going to miss anything. I promise you. They're not, they're not, mm, mm, mm. What about, what about, and this is one I've been trying to practice this week. What about as you, as you interact with people? Maybe it's over lunch or maybe it's your kids. Or, what, what if you just, as you're interacting with people, you try to train yourself to pray for them as you're talking with them? God, is there anything you'd want me to say to this person? And you know, maybe, maybe as you drive in the, with the radio off, on the way back from work, you, you sort of debrief how you did on all these things you said you'd do. Man, Lord, I really blew that one, didn't I? Like when I said that thing to that person, that didn't help at all, did it? Or Jesus, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's something you would have said. Like maybe I'd love an opportunity tomorrow to, to say what you'd say. Will you open my eyes to those? Or maybe, maybe you start just paying special attention to your circumstances. You might be in the situation this week where you're having to wait for something that you scheduled to happen at a certain time and it didn't happen. But there might be something the Spirit of God wants to say to you in that moment. And you can be frustrated and angry or you can be attentive. But you can't be both. You can be angry or you can be attentive, but you can't be both. Or maybe this week you just pay attention to some of the random thoughts that come into your mind. And you ask at the end of the day, or during the day, you ask, God, is there something you're trying to say to me? Like, what's that thought all about? Is there somebody I need to forgive? Do I need to, do I need to let go of that? Is this something you're moving me beyond? Because I, I, I want that. Is this the time to make that phone call, send that text, have that conversation? 
Or maybe, maybe, it's as we're worshiping as a community, because he's among us, we go, Lord, help me be attentive to what you'd say during these times of worship. Like as we sing, you stand alone and I stand amazed. Maybe the thought in the back of your head comes in like, it's been a long time since I've stood amazed. And instead of heaping condemnation and guilt on yourself, you just go, maybe that's an invitation. Maybe that's an invitation this week to just to stand amazed. See, here's the conviction. The conviction is Jesus is in our midst. So the invitation is to become a detective to figure out where and how and to hear his voice. Because that's the great invitation. And here's how John closes this section. Here's what he says. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that seems right. As though dead. But, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. And what turns, uh, what starts out as fear turns into, oh, worship, worship. And it's this transition that Jesus takes John on that I believe he wants to take us on too, because worship is the foundation. As Jesus grows, as Jesus is upsized, fear is downsized, and life becomes supersized. Worship is the foundation of fearless living. And there's one more way I didn't mention. One more way that you and I encounter the Jesus among us. And it's through this table. Through this table, we come and we, we certainly come to remember, but we don't come only to remember. We also come to experience we come, we come to meet with the God who is present in a unique and special way in this bread and in this cup. And as you come this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, the table is open to you. As you come this morning, would you come with conviction that Jesus walks around in our midst, that he wants to meet with you, that he is above, that he's advocating for, and that he is among us. May we together encounter this Jesus as we come to his table. Let's pray. So Lord, as we come now, we do so with a heart of worship and anticipation. Even now, would your spirit speak to us as we come up to this table and as we hold this bread in this cup, would you remind us of why we're doing this as we, as we think about your death and your resurrection and your promise to us? But Lord, also, would you, would you speak to us and would you meet us in a real way as we come and we celebrate this Eucharist? We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I'll invite you, as if you're a follower of Jesus, the table's open to you. They're, each server 